and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us today on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. After the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June 2022, abortion trigger laws that many states had on the books immediately went into effect, while many other states moved quickly to restrict care. As of last December, 14 states are enforcing total bans with limited exceptions, including two new bans enforced this year. As a result, almost 18 million women of reproductive age, in addition to transgender and non-binary people who may need an abortion, no longer have access to abortion care in their state of residence. This year, the court is poised to weigh in on a case that could severely restrict medication abortion access. Now that it's left to the states to protect protect abortion and women's health care rights, the future of reproductive justice is in the hands of the voters. And today we're talking about the activists who first waged this same battle more than 50 years ago in hopes of learning what their struggles can teach us and what we might take away from their victories and mistakes. My guest today is Felicia Cornblue, a professor of history at the University of Vermont. We'll be discussing her latest book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. Felicia Cornblue, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much, and thank you for addressing this really important issue. So I'm going to start with what I admit feels like a somewhat ridiculous question to ask, but given the state of politics today and the fact that many people have taken abortion rights for granted for so long, I really feel like I have to. The title emphatically states, a woman's life is a human life. Why isn't that a given? Hmm. I don't know why it's not a given, to be perfectly honest. I and I chose that I chose that as the title, even though I know that there are people who don't identify as women whose reproductive rights are, you know, need to be critically uh, protected by constitutional law and by our, our social movements. But that was the slogan of the the movement in the 1980s. And it was a counter to what was already then. Um, a movement for quote unquote fetal rights. You know, there was a, during the Reagan administration, there was an effort to pass a constitutional amendment called the Human Life Amendment, which would have said that fetuses have the all the same uh, civil and citizenship rights of already born persons, kind of like what we just heard from Alabama the other day, but we can talk about that later. Um, but that was, so that was where the battle was in the 1980s, that that there was a definition of quote unquote human life that seemed to include fetuses and embryos, but it did not seem to include already born, adult, pregnant, or potentially pregnant um, women or, you know, other people who had the capacity to get pregnant. And so what activists said was, you know, we insist that women and, you know, other people who have the ability to get pregnant are are also human, you know, and they they sort of felt like they needed to start there at that very minimal level to not let to not let the anti-abortion right wing define quote-unquote human life uh, to mean something other than their lives. And I don't know, it was a fundamental in the early 1980s, and it seems like it's a fundamental right now. You wrote that your inspiration for writing the book hinged on the lives of two women activists who lived on the same floor of an apartment building on West End Avenue. One of them was your mother. Can you tell us 
a bit about her life and and the first of its kind law that she wrote uh, repealing state restrictions on abortion? Yeah, so my mother, who I knew as an attorney who you know worked in labor law, which is a pretty progressive field, um, she had a whole history before I was born and in the early years of my life that I didn't know about until she was gone. And that was really the starting point for the book. So I found out after my mother had a had a serious, serious health event um, and she wasn't able to communicate anymore, I found out that she had been an early member of the National Organization for Women in New York, which had the very first local chapter of NOW. And that as a member of that organization, she actually was the one who drafted the law that legalized abortion in the state of New York. So she literally, since she was an attorney, she literally went through the state legal code and found every place where abortion was mentioned. And this draft law of hers just simply struck it out so that abortion would no longer be regulated by the state legal code. And it would simply be a matter of somebody's decision, you know, in consultation with their doctor, in consultation with their clergy, with their family members, considering their economic situation, et cetera. But the idea was that the government would get its nose out of people's reproductive decisions. And that that was the starting point, right? And that bill actually was introduced into the New York State Legislature at the beginning of 1969, so four years before Roe versus Wade. And it inspired people all over the country. It was the reason that the organization NARAL was created, for example, was to support that law and to support similar initiatives in other states. And it transformed the movement. It made the movement into a militant mass movement, whereas it hadn't really been that before, the movement to to decriminalize abortion or legalize abortion. Hmm. And then my mother and the activists that she was working with, they negotiated down. So what was ultimately passed in New York was not as radical as the thing that my, my mom originally proposed, but it was still the most liberal abortion law in the United States. And it's still set the standard that then the Supreme Court was looking at when they did get around to deciding Roe versus Wade in uh, 1972 and 1973. So your neighbor in that building was Dr. Helen Rodriguez Trias, a Puerto Rican physician who was equally committed to women's rights, but her focus was very different. Would you talk about her and her life's circumstances that led her to fight against involuntary sterilization? Yeah, Helen Rodriguez Trias is one of the real unsung heroes, I think, of late 20th century history and especially the history of feminism and medicine and the women's movement. So Rodriguez Trias, um, she grew up in part on on the island of Puerto Rico and, and her life was kind of divided between San Juan and New York City. And because she had this connection to Puerto Rico and to the independence movement on the island of Puerto Rico, she knew really earlier than than any of the feminists who were in New York City or on the U.S. mainland, she knew that there was sterilization abuse happening all the time. And that it sometimes it was the kind of the most grotesque or obvious kind of sterilization abuse where somebody would go to a hospital for one kind of surgery and they would come out and the doctor would say, oh, by the way, we also gave you a hysterectomy. And so you'll never be able to have children. Like that did happen. Um, but there also was a more subtle form of sterilization abuse 
where the doctor or a social worker or somebody else would say to a patient, well, you know, you're on welfare and maybe you can't afford to have another kid or kind of threaten them. You know, we might take away your welfare or your health insurance if you're receiving government health insurance, if you insist on having another kid or if you refuse to have this sterilization procedure. So there was all kinds of shady abuse, as they called it, going on in this realm. And it was happening almost exclusively to working class and poor women and women of color like the Puerto Ricans um, on the island of Puerto Rico. And so Rodriguez Trias really brought this issue to the attention of the women's movement on the U.S. mainland. And most of the white women, white middle-class women in the movement said, no, thank you. We don't want to take on that issue. Um, We don't really believe you that it's happening um, because it wasn't happening to them. Um, And then there was a small segment of people. um, I think they were mostly socialist feminists. They were people who knew something about what was going on in communities of color. Um, And there were people who were coming out of that movement, like women who were in the Puerto Rican Socialist Party. And they said, this is an integral issue. And if we're going to take on questions of reproductive rights, it has to go beyond abortion, right? It has to go to these issues that are also affecting the reproductive opportunities, the reproductive rights of women of color, working class women, unmarried women, you know, women who are receiving their health care through Medicaid and all of that. So they, they created a new wing of the movement that said people have the have the right to have kids, right? And to be free from this kind of sterilization abuse that would deprive them of the right to have kids or the ability to have kids, right? Just as much as they have the right to not have children and to access abortion care. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about the complex struggles that led to abortion rights and sexual freedom. My guest is University of Vermont professor Felicia Kornblue. Her latest book is A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. So I guess the obvious question is why didn't affluent white women get it? Why did they completely miss the point? of people of color and poor white women, what were they not seeing? What was the blind spot? I think there were two things going on. One is that they had a very distinctive experience and they, you know, they, they simply didn't see this as a, as a real problem for my mother, you know, her general experience of healthcare was a good one. You know, she generally speaking trusted doctors and the mainstream medical profession. Uh, it was just in this area of reproductive care or of access to abortion that she thought that there was a grave travesty of justice going on. And in fact, people like her had had to fight in the 1950s and early 1960s. They even went to court for the right or the ability to access uh, a sterilization procedure because uh, doctors and hospitals used to routinely forbid people if you know if you were white and middle class and you had good health insurance private health insurance then most likely in the middle part of the 20th century they would say no you're not allowed to you know eliminate your reproductive capacity you're not allowed to have a, you know, a sterilization procedure and it was basically the opposite for 
you know, Black women in the Deep South, for Mexican origin women in L.A., who also brought a big court case, for Indigenous women who were living on reservation, and for Puerto Rican women, whether they were on the mainland or on the island. So some of it is just, you know, the particularity of people's experience. You know, this is why we need movements that have lots of different kinds of people in them and that really respect everybody's voices and perspectives. Um, and I think also giving them a, a very high degree of benefit of the doubt, I think they were really worried that if, if they said, if they said that it was more difficult, that they were going to make it more difficult to get a sterilization procedure, that that would be a slippery slope. And it would set a kind of precedent for making it more difficult for somebody to get an abortion, right? If they, the, if they raised the consent requirements, which is what the sterilization movement wanted to do, to make it more difficult for people to consent to a sterilization, so sterilization, so they couldn't be pressured by their doctors and their social workers and, and other people. Um, right, they raised the consent requirements, then white middle-class women were worried that that would mean that there were going to be increased consent requirements in the arena of abortion. And actually, we did see that eventually, that the anti-abortion right-wingers sort of modeled themselves on what had happened in the sterilization abuse realm, and they they created this whole regime of, you know, difficult consent procedures for people to access abortion. Hmm. So I think that was also in play. Um, but if they, had, if they had really had a shared movement, if they really had been working together in the 60s and 70s, then I think they would have found a way to articulate a policy, you know, that was that was favorable to everybody's rights. So you wrote that history might have been different if the two sides had worked together, had fought for the right to parent as well as the right to avoid parenting. Different coalitions might have been formed, even coalitions that included lay Catholics who was who were as repelled by sterilization as much as they were abortion. What what do you think might have happened if the two sides sort of found a way to get together? What I think might have happened is that there might have been a much bigger and more robust movement. And I think it would have been a lot harder for anti-abortion right-wingers to say that this is a, an elitist movement or a racist movement. Um, you know, some of the, or an ableist, anti-disabled movement. These are all arguments that have been made very, very routinely in the years since Roe versus Wade in 1973, right? Those are an, the anti-abortion arguments and there are a lot of people, especially people from religious Protestant and Catholic backgrounds, who find those arguments compelling. And I think that the reproductive rights movement could have found a way to talk about people's needs for reproductive autonomy and reproductive choices in the plural that, you know, that would have really made it clear that they care about poor people and disabled people and non-white people and, you know, and to create a kind of agenda that would really speak to everybody's needs um, instead of, you know, creating an agenda that, of course, is, you know, is an urgent minimum, but is, you know, is not nearly enough for people to ge have genuine reproductive autonomy. 
You tell us that the real story of how abortion ceased to be a crime in the United States was not a march through the courts by clever lawyers, but a hard-won battle fought by grassroots activists who put unrelenting pressure on public officials. Can you talk about some of their tactics, tactics that, that might feel messy or awkward to a generation that's more comfortable with social media or, to quote you, which I really liked, uh, racial equity reading groups and canned food drives. What, what did they do that we should be doing? Well, first, I want to say um, I, I do not at all dismiss the work that's going on right now. And I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to be saying that. I think that that since Roe versus Wade was overturned, there has been just a huge outpouring of effort. You know, some people are writing checks and some people are knocking on doors and some people are running for office and some people are going to the streets. You know, there there is a movement that I think is having successes that are similar to the successes that that the movement, the movements I write about had in the 60s and 70s. So um, but I still think that there's a lot we can learn from the past. And you know, they they did everything. And that's part of what I learned in the in the course of writing this book. You know, some people think, oh, it's only militant lawbreaking that ever gets anything done. Well, there was militant lawbreaking, but it wasn't only militant lawbreaking. And then other people might think, oh, it's only, you know, polite lobbying, you know, inside baseball kind of stuff that ever gets anything done. Well, there was a lot of inside baseball stuff. There was, you know, people talking to legislators and like my mom, drafting new bills and doing that kind of thing. But they certainly weren't doing only that, right? So what I saw was that there, that everybody, no matter where they were situated and no matter what their politics were, was committed to this issue. To the, and I'm talking here about, about legalizing abortion or decriminalizing abortion. Um, and there was a comparable set of efforts, you know, a similar set of efforts um, when it came to controlling sterilization abuse. But they were working on the inside you know, through bureaucratic councils, through legislative lobbying, and they were working on the outside. And they were following the law and they were breaking the law. You know, and sometimes it was just, it was the same people doing both, right? On a Tuesday, they would be busting up a, a legislative hearing because it was, the hearing itself was so stacked with anti-abortion people or people who were too moderate on the question. So they would, you know, shout it down and take the risk of getting arrested. And then on another day, they might be supporting the clergy consultation service, which was a national network that was helping people get out of whatever state they were in to get to a place where they could have a, a safe abortion, even if it wasn't really very legal. Right. And on another day, they might be going to the state capitol, right. And sitting down with legislators and saying, you know, this is what the people in my community really want. So that's what I love about this movement. And, and what I really see in history is that when everybody puts their shoulder to the wheel, you know, when everybody does what they can do and what they're driven to do, then incredible social change is possible. Things that the people in the past thought were impossible, things that today we might think are impossible, become possible. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the history of the fight for abortion rights and sexual freedom. My guest is University of Vermont professor Felicia Kornblue. Her latest book is A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. So a year after the U.S. Supreme Court ended the nationwide right to abortion, Ohio voters approved constitutional protections for abortion access and other reproductive rights. Abortion rights could be on the ballot in other states as well. So is state by state the plan going forward, or or do you foresee other remedies on the national level? There's no question but that people have to fight at the state level right now. And there are opportunities right now. There will be a lot of opportunities in November. And I think everybody should pay attention. And it I'll just say it doesn't matter if you're living in Massachusetts, if you're living in Vermont or New York or some other place where abortion access is pretty safe, you can still participate. You know, it's become, thanks to technology, it's become possible for you to participate in a phone bank, uh, for example, to voters in Florida who are probably going to be voting on a very, very important um, abortion referendum this year or Arizona or Maryland, you know, there are a lot of states where these are going to be on the ballot. So that's happening and it must happen. At the same time, I would say two things. One is it's crazy for us to be feeling this way. I think it's crazy and it's, it's unbelievably expensive. It takes an incredible amount of people power and people energy and dollars. Um, in Ohio, they spent well over $28 million just the just the pro-abortion rights side. And we're going to see comparable amounts spent in all of these states. I mean, just imagine what we could do with that money, right? If we were moving a new agenda, positive new agenda forward, instead of just fighting for the rights that we had in 2022. Um, so I think it's nuts and kind of unsustainable. So I would love to see, you know, if we can't get a um, a new Supreme Court decision, I would love to see the U.S. Congress passed the Women's Health Protection Act and have a president who can sign it. So even though I know a lot of people are very skeptical about the Democratic Party and about mainstream politics, like that is what's possible if we have Democratic majorities or near majorities in both houses of Congress and a Democrat in the White House, there is a chance that we could get national protection that would do what Roe versus Wade used to do or maybe even do it better. And that that could be some real lasting protection that would mean that your civil rights are the same, whether you live in New York or you live in Alabama. Right now, your civil rights are not the same. Mm. Um, you know, your basic your basic human bodily rights and civil rights are not the same. So I think that's urgently important. So out here in Provincetown, we're lucky to have, as a friend and neighbor, an African-American activist by the name of Billy Avery. You wrote that Billy Avery's genius was to address everything that determined women's health and not separate reproductive health from all other kinds. Is this the future of the movement, the way to create more allies and bring more people together to fight for reproductive justice? I think it's a great way to fight for reproductive justice. And so Avery is is a critical person in the story I'm telling because there is there's a wave of activism, right, that 
that decriminalizes or legalizes abortion. And then there's Roe versus Wade in 1973. Um, and then a lot of the activists, especially the the more elite ones kind of pull back, right? Because they think things are handled. And then there's a very small movement <laughs> that's trying to fight sterilization abuse and, you know, and and move a wider agenda forward. Um, and then and then that also kind of hits a roadblock. And then Avery emerges in the 80s, organizing particularly among Black women with the this group called the Black Women's Health Project. Now it's Black Women's Health Imperative. And you know, she comes from a reproductive rights place. That's her starting point, and from the women's health movement. And she insists that her her group is going to be committed to health, and not merely to reproductive health. But reproductive health is definitely included. And I think that's I think that's absolutely essential. That um, that the movement needs to needs to communicate to people and. And and needs to be real about this, right? Needs to actually do the work of saying we care about people's lives, their whole lives, you know, not just not just at this moment when they either can or cannot access abortion. Um, that's it's just too it's too small of an agenda. And I don't I think even though everybody's energized right now by by the fight, you know, by pushing back um, against the anti-abortion right wing. I think ultimately we need to have a positive vision for the world we want to create. You know, that's I think what's what's really sustaining. And so I think Billy Avery in the 1980s and contemporary activists who call themselves reproductive justice activists, I think they they have that answer in a way that almost nobody else in our society does right now. That they say, yes, of course. People need to have access to legal and safe and affordable abortion care and contraceptive care. But people also need to lead lives of dignity and with rights um, for themselves, for their children, for their families, for their communities, right? And it's it's a much, much bigger agenda than simply securing abortion rights. So if you are totally committed to women's health. Abortion is just one tool in the toolbox. That's exactly right. If you're totally committed to women's health, then abortion is one aspect of that, one area in which we have to secure people's rights and options and opportunities. And we know that abortion is not all of somebody's life, right? It's not the only area in which people need to exercise autonomy and in which, you know, the government and the healthcare system might be depriving you of that autonomy. You know, a lot of people have have pretty terrible experiences with the healthcare system and with the welfare system and, you know, with their governments um, that go well, well beyond the abortion question. So your book was absolutely full of great stories. I love the story of red stockings storming into a meeting of 14 men and one woman who was a nun who all said they were abortion experts. And the women Ooh. said, have you ever had an abortion? <laughs> then you're not an expert. And I love the story of the long, young lords taking over Lincoln Hospital. Um, but I just have to ask you one thing, and this is the last question. So did your mom and... Dr. Um, Rodriguez Trias ever get together for tea or coffee or anything? I know for a fact that my mother went over to Rodriguez Trias's house 
on a few occasions. I know that she she went over there for a fundraiser once and and kind of came back shaking her head. And I think this is very revealing. Um, so it was a fundraiser for for Puerto Rico for people who were I don't I don't remember maybe there had been a hurricane uh, there was you know there was some emergency in Puerto Rico and so Rodriguez Trias was raising money for that she was deeply committed to the the well-being of of people on the island women and men and others and my mother sort of came back shaking her head and said uh, what was that all about <laughs> you know like why would she think I would be interested in that and so I think for my mom she didn't get the connections between feminism and and some of these other issues you know she certainly my mom would not have said that you know independence for the island of puerto rico which was something that our neighbor was deeply committed to was a feminist issue mm -hmm. yeah. you know but i think some people would say that today i mean i i i teach the history of feminism and a lot of my students would say yes of course yeah. you know Different <laughs> um, it's a it's a feminist issue yeah Okay. All right. I want to thank you very, very much for talking with us today. My guest has been University of Vermont professor Felicia Cornblow. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. A Woman's Life is a Human Life has just been published in paperback by the Grove Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the fight to win reproductive justice, one interview at a time. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.